Hello, everybody. Coming at you with a special edition of the Ski the Whites podcast. And we have successfully commandeered uh, Andrew's podcast for the day. My name is Pat Scanlon. I am with the Avalanche Foundation. And I'm joined by Frank Karras, lead snow ranger of the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. Frank, how's it going? Good. Yeah, just uh, working into the uh, summer season here and doing some season wrap up stuff. And I think people are up still skiing a little bit, believe it or not, though we're not there. We are uh, officially done with our responsibilities June 1st, but I'm glad we uh, set out to talk today because I think we have a few things to talk about regarding spring skiing and other topics. Yeah, for sure. The snow patches are looking smaller and smaller each day. Um, I've been picking ticks off me left and right, so it's definitely summer. I'm ready for it. I don't know about you, but yeah. We definitely have a few topics to talk about. It's been a while since there's been a uh, outreach podcast with you. And uh, certainly there was some action uh, on your end this spring. And so I think what we'll do for this session is just we have a few topics and we'll just take uh, each one at a time and take a few minutes and go and talk about them. Um, the first, I think, really revolves around rescue. Um and I think that's because there was a, a pretty harrowing rescue recently in the ravine um, involving helicopter resources and um, multiple entities responding to a pretty bad accident. Can you talk about that and what happened? Sure. Yeah, we were uh, on a pretty quiet day Sunday. I think that was May 30th. Anyway, Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, maybe a dozen, two dozen people skiing up in Tox, um, forecast to get, uh, rainy towards the end of the day. So people were out kind of early overcast, um, to down to the summit level. The ceiling was around, around the summit, maybe 8,000 feet to start the day and dropped around midday. Um, and anyway, uh, man and his son were up skiing. Um, our patrollers were two patrollers, I believe were up in the bowl. Um, one of the patrollers was up in the left gully and at some point, uh, later in the afternoon, um, responded that, um, he had seen or reported, um, had reported to him a long sliding fall into launch rocks and the father and son had, um, skied several, couple other lines, I think probably left gully, if I recall, first, and then went up to ski this line from Sluice Bowl below where the ice fall, you know, where the ice um, <clears throat> frozen waterfalls usually are. And sometime, I think while he was standing there or taking the final steps about to put his skis on, I think is how it went. He stepped up um, onto some ice that was submerged beneath the surface. So not an unusual thing. I've seen it had it happened to me where, you know, the waterfall ice flows out over the snow at certain periods during the year um, and then gets buried again by, by more snow. So he just thought he was stepping into regular corn snow and he stepped on that ice and took a fall. And, um, you know, it's really steep right there. So he probably got going pretty good, um, right at the start where it's so steep, just below the waterfalls and, and rode it all the way down, hit the rocks. Um, someone, um, my son sent me a photo and 
showed where he hit the rocks and how he tumbled basically about 40 feet down through the tops of top of launch rocks. This is the upper end of launch rocks, you know, because it was quite melted out at that point. <clears throat> so at that time, the ski patroller made his way over after hearing the report, you know, which took a l- little bit of time. Um, the young man, I believe, called 911 first, um, as he should have done. Um, ski patroller uh, got over, got his assessment, called me, um, indicated that it was pretty severe. We got more help on the way, um, including the Hermit Lake caretaker and other ski patrollers, including the patrol director. And um, the subsequent patient care report, which had some more detail, indicated to me that um, the nature of the injuries, plus the fact that we had no snow machine access any longer on the Sherburn Ski Trail or the Tucks Trail, indicated to me that um, a helicopter would be warranted. Knowing what I know about helicopters, and I know you know this too, is that they can't always fly, right, in our weather. And and really, um, not just the weather at the site, but the weather where they're launching. So I set out to arrange for a helicopter, but simultaneously arrange to keep moving the patient towards the um, trailhead. So that's what we did. We uh, ended up that Dart was socked in, and I had been in touch with a Coast Guard commander about a month before. They had been up here doing some training. They were working on their mountain rescue capabilities and just mountain flying in general. <clears throat> so I still had his number in my phone and uh, and his process, and uh, we had talked about what they were capable of and, and what they're uh, what machines they had and they were able to, um, launch. We had a, a briefing on the weather, um, where I relayed what exactly was going on here. I talked to the national weather service and the summit about, um, the, the forecast for a lowering ceiling, which was lowering about 500 feet an hour at that point, And also about the icing conditions that existed, but were diminishing because that morning started out cool and a warm front was coming up, very warm southwest moist flow was coming up and uh, changing that over to just, you know, typical fog and rain. Frank, I've worked a few rescues with you over the years. One of them uh, was uh, involved helicopter resources um, a a bunch of years ago, actually two uh, helicopter evacuations in one day, uh, which was, was, was an intense day. Um, and over the years of doing that, I, uh, learned an incredible amount uh, about not only the technical side of rescue, but also the amount of resources that it takes to, uh, effectively get somebody out of the mountains who is, who can't do it under their own power. And I, you know, over the years of talking to people in the mountains in various capacities, professional and personal, um, it's clear that, you know, not a lot of people really know the ins and outs of how uh, people are evacuated and who does that and how many different entities are involved. And it actually, when you look behind the scenes, it becomes quite complex when you see all of the things that are happening. Um, So, Maybe if you can speak to, this might be helpful for the greater ski community, um, 
maybe speak first about how rescue works in terms of who is doing it uh, in the ravine in the winter and then also just briefly how is that how is that different than other seasons in the summer in the whites okay yeah um that is a an interesting question that's unique to this area um and i think folks who live out west and um return or when you travel out west it's uh interesting to note that you know their land um management and particularly in particular their rescue um, responsibilities in the western states are almost always um, local sheriffs you know that's county driven so you know some counties in the western states are just huge Um, and so the sheriffs have a you know a certain like a sheriff's posse sometimes they'll call it the SAR posse and then they'll have various rescue teams volunteer teams working um, below them. Oftentimes those sheriffs are, are more like the radio guys in the car at the trailhead. Then they have a volunteer team that goes out and performs the rescue. Other ones like the Teton County SAR are quite spun up. They do a lot with helicopters. They do a lot with training. It's multi-agency, including the National Park Service guys. Um, so there's a wide range of, of skill sets and abilities within those teams almost all of them revolve or or, uh, require volunteer assistance you know these rescues are typically infrequent as ours are really in the grand scheme of things so it's hard to you know dedicate like the equivalent of a fire department for something some event that is really you know few and far between few a year or whatever um in our case, it's uh, in the east, um, I guess for similar reasons that our roads are really windy and don't go where you want them to go. They evolve from, you know, early settlements, you know, 300 years ago. And uh, we've ended up with this hodgepodge throughout New England of various uh, agencies being responsible for search and rescue. So to our east in Maine, it's the um Maine State Forest Rangers who do the rescue, um, who do not do the fish and ga- uh, fish and game type uh, wildlife enforcement. Um, here in the state of New Hampshire, it's the New Hampshire Fish and Game Service who are also, you know, law enforcement officers and do the um, wildlife. You know, they'll do anything from uh, poaching stings to snowmobile stops and DUI checkpoints for ATVs plus search and rescue Um, for in our little neck of the woods because Tuckerman Ravine and Huntington were the locus of just a ton of activity in the early days skiing and climbing the Forest Service um, had a presence there Um, we had you know one of the earlier avalanche forecast centers Starting in the 50s, um, we we're the first backcountry avalanche program, forecast program in the country. Um, the UAC had an earlier, or the Utah Center in Little Cottonwood, got started first doing forecasting for the road. And I think the mines too, maybe, when they first got started. But the roads for sure, Little Cottonwood Canyon Road basically. And um, so yeah, those are the two kind of earliest programs and ours um, developed into a 
a SAR program, and we took over um, in 1980 um, from the state. Um, it was recognized that you know we were we were there. Snow Rangers were in, on scene all the time. We were forecasting, and a ski patrol was there who we interfaced with all the time. The ski patrol actually started well before we started forecasting. I think I want to say they started in the 30s. I think that's true. <clears throat> and so we worked with them at that time uh, to to get to do the search and rescue, which in 1980 was officially signed over to us, and we hold that lead agency in charge. Um, duty from December 1st to June 1st. And that's, that's where we are at now. And we have the AMC, you know, where you worked, um, as caretaker, you're like tip of the spear for us, along with a Harvard mountaineering club cabin, the Harvard cabin caretaker, you know, you guys are off in the tip of the spear. I'll call in the middle of the night for my house. You know, when I get a state call from state police that someone's missing and you guys will sometimes go up in the terrain um, or, or help us when we get there or both. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, between AMC, HMC, Ski Patrol, Forest Service, then we also have for bigger um, events or events that last longer or more complex, we would call in Mountain Rescue Service or Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue. And then on top of that, our local responding agency is Gorham EMS. So it is quite a elaborate uh you know network of phone numbers so it's a lot it's complicated it makes me appreciate the work that's done from the top to communicate with so many different people from so many different organizations sometimes even in just one incident um and uh, i've seen them uh go really well and so it's uh, a testament to the the leadership of, of the people calling the shots usually and and also the the technicians on the ground who are um, getting those injured folks out. Um, so, yeah, super interesting to hear that uh, history of um, how search and rescue has evolved, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve um, as uh, as the years go by. So um, let's talk a little bit about the helicopter, because that was something that uh, kind of blew up, it seemed like, on the Internet once uh there's has a helicopter involved. Uh, people love uh, seeing that. It makes a, a dramatic kind of harrowing rescue good story. Usually, um, you know, there's been helicopters that have landed in the courtyard of Tux. Um, that's an intense. If you've ever seen how wide of a space that is, it's it's not very big. Um, they've landed in the bowl. They've landed on the Alpine Garden. Um, so maybe just talk a little bit about this one. Um, what are the perceptions of it? Is it useful? It, you know, do you, do you like using them, uh, on, as, in, as part of a rescue and we just hear your perspective on it? Yeah. So some of what I know I, I brought with me here after working on an ambulance as a, as an EMT and then later an advanced EMT. And I recognize, um, through those, um, you know, responding to critical injuries or, or at least, you know, life-threatening injuries that, the reality is here in the North country is we have level three hospitals and we've got, you know, a lot of good people there and a lot of good docs, but they have limited capabilities. So oftentimes any critically injured patient that we would have, that's, you know, we could scoop them right up in an ambulance. The first thing you want to do is start an, start a helicopter coming. 
because those that golden hour situation um, exists until they get to definitive care, which in the case of like a thoracic injury or a head injury or something, some kind of internal injury, you know, they need surgery. They need to be opened up. And that is not necessarily going to happen at, you know, even a really good ER with, with, well, at a good ER and a level three center with great orthopedists, say, at Memorial. You know, they those guys know know how to fix, you know, bones and stuff. But if it's a, if it's really serious, that patient's going to keep going. So if you, if we ended up, you know, taking somebody by ground, eventually they're going to go and lay in the Memorial Bay, get evaluated, get billed as a sidebar, just for that, for people who money's as a concern with the, with this. Um, and then they're going to get shipped again, either by ground or by air to, to Memorial or sorry, to Maine Med or Dartmouth or Mass General or wherever that, um, more, um, capable hospital is with, with, you know, surgeons who are, who are there, surgeons who are on call or actually, actually in the hospital, which they can often have, um, you know, so going back to the helicopters, um, you know, helicopters have had um, some high profile incidents, just like this one, you know, attracts attention. People have images of the um, army helicopter, guard helicopter on Mount Hood rolling over and ejecting the contents of the cockpit, you know, basically all the rescue techs, you know, out, out the side doors into the snow, none of whom were killed actually. But we also have images of, um, or some of us who were around back in the 90s, there were high-profile incidents where um, um, medical, you know, medevac helicopters, medical ambulance, air ambulances would respond to calls and, and wreck. And the, uh, there was a pretty big, uh, or a spike in occurrences there in the 90s of those helicopters um, having accidents or incidents and the whole industry about, you know, took a hard look at itself. And I don't know if the FAA got involved or whatever, but that industry changed its tactics to include, um, not telling the pilot or crew what the nature of the injuries were or the age of the patient, um, or any other information that might increase the urgency of the situation or reduce their um, objective assessment of the hazards involved with the flight. So when those guys are dispatched, the only thing that they're told is we have a patient, you know, in, in location X, look at your, look at your flight capabilities, look at the weather and make your decision whether you want to go or not. They're taking the human factor out of it so that they can make similar decisions each time that they're out. Exactly. And they're not biased by the fact that like, you know, oh, it's a three-year-old, you know, it's a toddler or it's a young mother or, you know, or on the flip side, oh, it's an old person who's lived a good life already. We don't need to go. We don't need to take a risk. So, you know, they try to just level those um, risk choices. Um, you know, for, for us in the state of New Hampshire, we have you know, not a whole lot to draw on. We have two, you know, excellent 
air medical resources, DART, the Dartmouth Hitchcock Air Ambulance Service, DART, and then Life Flight of Maine out of Bangor, or is that Lewiston? I think Lewiston, Bangor, and Portland, they have um, places. Lewiston's the closest for us, and um, we've used all all of them. Um, and uh, what we don't typically use is the Air Army National Guard, which the um, we could use. The Fishing Game could deploy them for us. The Fishing Game uses them um, pretty regularly with, uh, with more... Um, either seriously injured, but more likely just remote um, patients or technical searches that have some sort of time element or just absurdly long carryouts um, with with serious patients. The problem with that helicopter setup is that they are not tasked with doing search and rescue as their primary mission. They're, uh, they're manned on kind of a work hours sort of idea so the the flight crew is there you know 40 hours a week as part of their normal mission they do trainings you know beyond that but it's a national guard helicopter and it um uh it sometimes gets deployed so it's not available here uh it doesn't always have its hoist mounted and and honestly the crew could be you know they could have a pilot on vacation for the weekend or they could be out on the town and not really um in any condition to fly you know Literally, and that's 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 it. That is what it is. You know, we we take them when we can get them. For us, for our purposes, you know, the Cutler, our area of responsibility is so small that um, in the winter months we can get up and down by ground faster um, with snowmobiles and the piston bully. Like at the end of the day, it's really not that far. It's three miles. So the risk of calling a helicopter is rarely worth it unless, you know, we've, we're confronted with a golden hour situation, you know, like a very critical patient that really needs uh, quick access to care. So if we call a helicopter, it's because we want that patient, uh, or I want that patient, or in our assessment, we think that patient needs to go straight to Maine Med, straight to Dartmouth, straight to, to um, you know, more, uh, serious uh, or level one trauma center. The danger of using helicopters is there. And even when things are going well, which is most of the time, uh, there's still lots of factors like rotor wash. And, uh, and, you know, if you think about it, a pilot has to be able to um, carry out this mission uh, without a lot of external variables. And people, I think, are often the, the big variable. So what do you, you know, if people see a helicopter that's trying to operate or trying to land or trying to get somebody out, what's your advice if somebody's just around? What should they do? Yeah, give it a wide berth. Um, that's the biggest thing. Um, don't assume you know where the helicopter's going to land. Also, don't assume um, once the helicopter's departed that you're free to walk back into the landing zone. Um, really important to keep that area clear. The most uh, um, potentially dangerous part or the place where mishaps most frequently happen with any helicopter is right after takeoff. And in that case, they're going to need to go back, return quickly right back to their landing zone. If they have an engine failure, that would include trying to um, 
oh gosh, the auto rotation where they have power failure, they can get they can keep the rotor spinning and basically land. Uh, it's essentially like a very highly controlled crash, um, and they do it. They uh, pilots have to do that routinely to turn the power off, keep the rotors going, adjust the pitch so they maintain just enough lift. So they touch down without damaging anything. Pretty fascinating. Counter-rotation, they call that. Um, so that's that's that. The other thing is um, loose objects can get sucked up, you know, in, the, in that downwash. It becomes like a, there's an output to the downwash, which is what's flattening, you know, you and the trees and blowing dust and snow around. And in this most recent rescue, blowing the picnic tables off the deck. At, at Hojo's, um, but that that air continues around. That current comes around and enters the top of the rotors as well. If you have like someone's loose jacket or uh, windbreaker, even could get sucked into that rotor and uh, and then into the jet, the intake, um, which would be um, really bad. So we've had to have real tight scene control when we've had to do that and people don't realize why we're so amped up i think they like think i'm a jerk for like having them put your jacket away you know said it like two or three (laughs) times like no put it away now but there's a lot to think about with those and um you know the other thing i just going back to another rescue this uh earlier in the gulf slides um, I called for a helicopter there after finally establishing the nature of the injuries, um, which was not easy to do. Um, we didn't have any snow rangers or anyone with a radio there. The only person I had in contact was a guide who had an inReach, but he was um, having to like, I don't know how you type on the inReach, but it wasn't working with his phone. So he was trying to like go through the alphabet to send out you know, and I'm asking for patient details. So, um, so I didn't know exactly for a while whether a helicopter was needed or was it, whether, you know, whether it wasn't. So we, we did ultimately get that helicopter up. Um, I helped them try to find a landing zone, which some of the members of the party, uh, said that they found, you know, which in their view, like a 40 foot hole in the forest they thought was enough. And um, on closer inspection by the pilot and crew and everyone on board was like, no, that's not going to happen. There was like a 30, 40 foot dead snag right on the edge of it, which could just tip right over into the rotors. So um, we tried to land um, adjacent to that and it was on a tilted slope. There was enough uncertainty as to the um, quality of that landing zone combined with uh, at the time I got more information about the pot, the uh, the nature of the injuries and the stability of the patient uh, that I waved it off and and the pilot was happy with that as well because there was enough uncertainty about that landing zone that we chose to have the rescuers carry the uh, slide the patient out the four or five hours or whatever it was I know there's some people that were not happy with that decision, but, you know, not bringing down a multi-million dollar helicopter with four lives on board for for the one guy, right, like who had stable injuries. Um, so there's always, and then I also didn't call the helicopter back because at that point it was dark and his injuries um, seemed to be, um, well, certainly stable enough that 
that that was, as it turned out, the right call. Um, hard decisions to make, you know, you, you do the best you can with the um, given medical expertise on the ground. Um, one of the things that we don't want to hear from people is we need a helicopter and we need it now. And then, okay, what's your level of training and experience? Um, you know, first aid, right? Well, okay, what's their Glasgow? What, what, what number are they on the Glasgow coma scale? Like, what is it about their level of acuity or their mental status that needs, that requires that, you know? So people need to bone up and realize that some more detailed information is helpful. And I, and I get it. Patient presentation is a big part of, you know, a person's judgment. And it's often, if anyone has any kind of experience or training, it's often correct. But you know, you know what it looks like when someone cartwheels down talks, you're just pretty much convinced they're definitely going to die. Right. And then they stand up and walk away and everyone cheers. So um, we have to be careful what information we use to launch helicopters on. These incidents in the spring months are uh, usually the result of our interaction as backcountry travelers with the hazards that are present. And there's many. And uh, you, if you were following the forecasts that were posted in the spring, uh, you can get a pretty good idea of what they are. But to name a few, um, there's falling ice, there's slick, surf, icy surfaces, refrozen surfaces, there's undermined snow and waterfall holes and glide cracks. And there's a lot of stuff uh, that uh, can get you even though it's still a bluebird day and the snow is otherwise stable. And um, that can be hard to convey in an avalanche forecast, right? When people are used to reading a five scale uh, rating about if something's going to slide or not. And uh, the danger can be low, but the subsequent hazards uh, can still be high. They're just not necessarily avalanches like we're used to uh, seeing. Um, so what are some maybe takeaways from this spring for you in, in terms of just the the spring hazards and how people interacted with them. Yeah, it seems like at a certain point people stop reading the avalanche forecast. Um, and that, um, you know, because they're either used to the hazards up there or, um, you know, basically that I think it's partially the familiarity heuristic, you know, the, um, people, um, get comfortable in that terrain, and um, make decisions based on how it was two years ago or last year or the week before. Um, and, you know, that is, uh, you know, not good for sure. Um, conveying the hazard in a written way, the spring hazards are so varied and um, they change day to day. And, you know, they're very low frequency events that someone falls in a glide crack or in that waterfall hole that we we kind of run the risk of uh you know being chicken little when we talk about these things and the sky is falling and then everybody you know if you go ski you're gonna die and then a thousand people come and everybody skis fine you know walks away so these are these are really unpredictable hazards because essentially at that point, we're not predicting the hazard. We're predicting people's 
um, interaction with them, which is even more unpredictable. One of the interesting things that I've noticed throughout the years is just how, you know, if somebody, a skier or a climber gets on something, it starts a chain reaction of other people making that same terrain choice or decision. And then it turns into the snowball effect where maybe you have, you start the day with nobody booting up the lip and then you have one person and then that turns into five and then all of a sudden there's a line Conga up the line up, uh, yeah. And that's been interesting uh, over the years uh, seeing uh, and scary seeing a, a conga line and a piece of ice fall down and people jump out of the way in the conga line to avoid it. Um, yep. So, you know, it's one of the big takeaways that we try to talk to people about is just, um, you know, you, you need to be making your own decision and and thinking about why you're going where you're going and if if the masses are making the right choice and uh, before you you assume that that people are going where it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's astonishing to me. The uh, I forget which weekend it was, but um, it was pretty challenging conditions and all of a sudden I look up and there's a conga line up up the chute you know which is one of the steepest and it's fairly consequential you know there's rock it's bound by rocks on one side and a little bit of a cliff on another and uh you know I was thinking like are really that many skiers up there that good and uh you know watch people ski down clearly no they weren't you know <laughs> fortunately no one got hurt but yeah, don't uh, don't count on just because there's a good boot pack in place. You know, you don't doesn't necessarily lead to your uh, appropriate difficulty in skiing. So, yeah, that's um, that's key. This another take interesting thing this year I think for me was just how quickly the south facing slopes started to deteriorate. So um, by the real spring skiing season, you know, as it emerged. Um, there just wasn't much left, but left gully and, and shoot and center ball to some extent. So people were, you know, getting on that sometimes inappropriately with, take, you know, some nasty falls. And I remember one person getting stranded and kind of getting rescued. I think it was like a guy's girlfriend or a girl's boyfriend. I couldn't tell exactly. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a, a 30 minute, um, show of, uh, bravery on the part of the people that were going to help him and yeah I'll, I'll leave it at there <laughs> i was climbing on cathedral last saturday and uh it was busy and the a rock came screaming down the size of a watermelon about 20 feet away from us uh, thin air face yep wow. exactly and uh it, it reminds me that often the biggest hazard is the the amount of people that are above yeah. you. Yeah, that was not spontaneous rockfall. No way. So it was somebody carrying it from the parking lot or the oh, trail. Yeah, probably. Throw it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, I think they probably kicked it off the uh, aeration ledge. You it was, think? Yeah, it came from high up, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I would think someone threw it because there's just hardly any loose rocks there. Oh, yeah. But I know. Yeah, yeah. You never know. You never know. And, uh, and the more people that are above you, you know, the more hazard there is for sure. So unless you have anything else about spring hazards, maybe we can transition and just talk a little bit about, um, uh, objectives for next year. And, um, and, and I, within the first thing is, is that I really like to remind people that friends of Tucker intervene, who is responsible for a lot of the fundraising, um, to support the operations at the avalanche center is still, uh, putting on a fundraiser, uh, right now. And, um, 
you know, if, if you are somebody who came up and, and you used the avalanche forecast or you talked to a ranger in the courtyard or you attended one of our virtual outreach events this winter and that was valuable to you and maybe that helped you make a safe decision or, or, um, or feel you know comfortable getting out in certain terrain, then I'd really encourage you to, to maybe just give something back to uh, the community and uh, and support the operation that that gives out these public uh, forecasts that are incredibly detailed and thorough. Um, so Frank, let's talk a little bit about um, next year. Like you know, what's what are, do you have any big projects? Uh, what are you working on? Um, and and maybe you know what's on. Where does this money go? Where does, what does it get used for? What's on your wish list for MWAC? Yeah, um, we've got a lot of plans um, already. We're uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to install that snow scale that we um, got with uh, donated um, funds. And I'm blanking right now on where that snow scale came from. Oh, that actually, I think Hydrology purchased that. But yeah, we'll get that in place and that'll give us a, an hourly picture of snowfall. The uh, weather instrument that we have up there, the snow can, just wasn't, didn't cut the mustard. It wasn't accurate enough. And uh, the snow scale is actually going to weigh the snow. So we'll have um, a way to calibrate snow density as it's coming in and the rate of snowfall. And I think that will help us a lot with our forecasting efforts. And, and our accuracy. Um, I'd like to continue these, um, you know, improving the data sites that we have, um, including Randolph Mountain Club, the Gray Knob Cabin. That's been really helpful. The problem there is the um, exposure to wind, basically, of that snow plot. So we can't get um, as accurate a measure as we'd like. It's still important data that's flowing from there, but um, we'd like to, to work on that site. Um, the, the biggest, uh, objective that I have right now currently, if, uh, depending on how it works out for these donations to Fodor is to get one, if not two more, um, snow rangers, basically. Um, it's, uh, more, more boots on the ground will give us more eyes on and hands on the snow in different parts of the range. Um, ideally we can start producing information for some, some of these outlying events that we hear about, um, you know, from persistent weak layers being triggered, uh, you know, like over in Maine, Grafton Notch, we saw, and we really wanted to go look at that, but we just did not have the manpower, um, you know, um, because of our search and rescue responsibilities and that intensive use and talks, it really pulls a lot of our resources into that zone at least three days a week. It's all all hands on deck, you know, up there. So um, essentially the the goal is to get more people on the ground and more people in the team. We're, we're doing, you know, we have a small range really, but it's really widely variable um, in terms of the conditions that we see from even just the north to the southern end of the presidential range. So we'd really like to have um, more folks. That's the big thing. Yeah, that's great. And even though we might have the smallest uh, forecasting area in terms of acreage in the country, uh, our user group certainly is right up there with um, numbers oh, yeah. that you would see in Colorado or, or Utah. Oh, totally. We're, yeah. 
Little Cottonwood Canyon comes to mind or uh, as ter- in terms of backcountry users, um, I would say we're probably have as many people in our terrain on any given weekend um, as, as they do. Um, you know, granted, we don't have a persistent slab problem and we don't have to dig a whole lot to do a decent job to do, a you know, an accurate forecast. Sorry to say decent job. We do have higher standards than that. <laughs> but, you know, in this wind driven snowpack, it really is quite variable. Um so we really like to get in the terrain and um, it's, I think we can also produce pro level observations that are helpful um, beyond just a forecast, you know, just getting in to some terrain, a piece of terrain that people aren't seeing much, taking some photos, digging a couple pits, checking, you know, checking for wind effect and checking for boot and pole penetration and all those things are just key for folks trying to make a decision for the next day and um you know i'm still kicking around and talking to stakeholders but i don't see any reason why we shouldn't be forecasting for all of the white mountain national forest um granted uh, most of the other areas are um you know we just don't have the frequency of avalanches but that's what we know right like we don't have enough people going to these places to see or at least enough rangers, we just hear through the grapevine about, oh, it's triggered a small pocket and, you know, Lincoln's throat. We're like, well, Lincoln's throat's only capable of producing a small pocket. It's probably big enough to kill somebody. Um, so, you know, those places we just, we'd really like to get out and about more. And I think there's something to be said, too, for visiting these glades once in a while um, to check conditions, produce a little information, interact with the public spread a little message. Um, so that's, that's part of that goal. And the other thing too, is we, we do feel that snow rangers are folks that are really fully engaged to the mountain every day, um, tend to do a real good job doing outreach and, um, you know, talks like avalanche awareness talks or updates. Um, so if we can get those folks, um, hired, we can, get them doing some of those talks as well. Um, you know, we love our cooperators doing it as well. You know, Matt and, um, Mike and folks that are Joe who've all done a really good job. You have done a great job giving these talks, but, um, I think that day to day is uh day to day interaction in the terrain. You know, if you're, if you're up and on the West side, you know, on Thursday and then Thursday night, you give a talk, there's going to, you're going to be able to spread some pretty good information around. So yeah, that's, that's that. That's awesome. Uh, in the Tetons, they have a state of the snowpack weekly uh, gathering just at a brew pub. Mm-hmm. It's uh, either a forecaster or we like brew pubs. We like brew pubs. Yeah. Uh, forecaster or a local avalanche educator or guide. And they, you know, they, they give a, a weekly summary and conversation and, and give yeah. some good lessons in there too. It's a pretty cool model. So yeah, let's do that. sounds like there's a lot of brewing in terms of outreach and just ideas for getting people engaged in the community. I know, I think we had record numbers of people um, visiting online and, mm-hmm. um, and interacting with what the Avalanche Center is putting out there. So you know, thanks to, t- thanks to everybody who's doing that and, and, and we hope to continue that in the future. Yeah, for sure. We just counted. I started doing metrics today, but we had 150 observations last year 
So I think we started that with three years ago, the observations program. And I think we had like a dozen maybe or 20 the first year. So that's really taken off. That's super helpful for us as well as other users. We had, like, as you mentioned, a record number of people attending the online programs, which will continue um, regardless of the state of the pandemic. I think that's a great model. Um, we'd also, we do miss that face 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 time. So if we can do some um, in person as well, there's it's fun to, to meet people and chat with them after those talks. So we'll try to pick those up again as well next year. Um, yeah, what else to talk about in terms of our wish list? Yeah, I guess the, the main thing, the big expense and what we're putting on hold is just you know, we always want to get better with our rescue capabilities and that involves training and equipment and replacing ropes and snow machines and all that. And any kind of support we can get um, for all of that helps direct funds to other areas in the forest. So, um, so yeah, if as people help us out, we'll uh, know that you're helping more than just the Avalanche Center. Any teasers on who's going to be the keynote speaker at Esau this year? Um, I'm not at liberty to say just yet, but they'll be awesome. All right. Well, it's Friday night. I think we had a good chat today. Thanks, Frank. Um, yeah, for sure. Thanks for a great winter, keeping us all in the loop. Yeah. And uh, thank you for helping for doing the talks and for uh, getting this going today. And if anybody has any topics that they would like to hear about, um, I wouldn't mind doing an occasional podcast over... Um, the summertime and fall as we go into the season. So um, just a reminder to everybody to, you know, it seems like the doldrums here in summer, but it's not going to be that long. So make sure when you're thinking about cross training and training your legs, think about doing some reading on avalanches and heuristics and human factors. And don't forget to take your batteries out. Take your batteries out. You heard it from him. Yeah. Batteries out of the beacon. All right. Thanks, Frank. Okay. Bye, everybody.